Um, if you don't have a Bible with you in the pews in front of you, pew backs in front of you, we've got a couple of these in at least every row. Go ahead and grab one of those. We're going to be on page 811 in that today. Um, and if the rest of you are in Philippians chapter 3, that's what's on page 811. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, um, then out in front here in the foyer and you leave, we've got a few set out on the table, some blue ones. That's our gift to you. We want you to have uh, one of those because we believe uh, it is the Word of God. Uh, help uh, join me, if you will, just wishing all the ladies a special happy Mother's Day today. Um, I know, just even from the dynam- dynamics of my own family, um, that holidays can cause great joy and great celebration uh, and great excitement, and they can also bring up um, uh, great loss and tragedy and pain. And so if you're here today and this is a great day for you, then we want to honor you and celebrate with you. And if you're here today and this is a tough day for you, then we want to honor you and mourn along with you. But our heart is just that you uh, feel honored and you feel our gratitude for all uh, the special ladies in our lives today. And so uh, let me go ahead and express that to you uh, before we get started. On a day like today, we've got kind of a different crowd. A lot of our people are off visiting mothers and then uh, mothers and other family members come in. And so for those of you who uh, haven't been here before, haven't been here in a while, we're going through Philippians together as a church. Uh, we've been going through this book for some time. Um, and today we get to chapter 3, and I'm really excited about that. But before we get into that, let's just open with a word of prayer. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for uh, each and every person who could be here today. Um, and Lord, we know that you have them here, uh, not by accident, not by mistake, but you uh, brought them here for a reason and a purpose. And so God, I just pray now that they'll hear your voice above all others. Um, God, this is your word. These are your people. Um, this is your world. Um, and I just pray that you would move now. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometimes what we think to be true and real isn't true or real, and we don't even know it. Um, one of the things that I've been trying to work through personally is I just have a really bad attitude when it comes to winter. Uh, and I wanted to work through that and get it, start thinking more positively about winter. This last winter, I chose the worst winter ever uh, to try to do that because it's one of the worst winters we've ever experienced. And, and so I tried really hard to focus on something good that comes out of winter. And I searched for about four months. I couldn't come up with anything. Uh, and then my dad told me that if you get a really long, deep freeze... It kills, all the, it kills a lot of mosquitoes and gnats, and so that this spring and summer, whenever it finally arrived, would just be great and wonderful, and uh, there wouldn't be near as many insects. I'm going to go see my parents this afternoon, I'm going to show dad all the mosquito bites on my arms and legs and tell him he was a liar. Um, this is how I'm going to greet him, you know. Uh, this happened with my daughters this week as well, that my five-year-old is just terrified of bees, right? So whenever she sees a bee, there's always this big dramatic reaction, as there is with everything with her. Uh, there's running and screaming and fleeing, the whole works. Well, watching and observing all this has been Jim, our two-year-old, uh, who, who has recently decided in her brain that every single bug and insect and fly on the planet is a bee, right? And so what she's learned from Big Sister is that bees are dangerous, and so this went even another step on Tuesday night. Tuesday night, Corinne was here uh, with some of you ladies, so it was just me at home with the girls, and we were outside uh, because finally we get this beautiful weather, and um, I was pumped that it hit 80 degrees, so I just spent all the time I could outside this week, and I was in the garden, and the girls were playing in the yard, when all of a sudden I hear this blood-curling, terrifying scream from Gemma. Um, I drop everything running over there expecting her to not have all her fingers or have one of the legs cut off or something, and, and she, I get to her and she tells me she's been stung by a bee. I ask her where, and she points to a spot right on top of her nose, and there's no bump, there's no 
swelling, there's no redness or whiteness, no stinger, no anything. So I calm her down, she, she obviously wasn't stung, and I go back to work, and five minutes later, here comes that blood-curdling scream again. So I go running again, same story, bee stung me, dad, dad, bee stung me. And I look, I can't find any evidence whatsoever, and so I told her, you weren't stung, right? So I go back to the garden, and I'm working, this time I'm watching her, just to see what's happening, and I realize that there was a housefly near her. And whenever it flew near her face at all, it didn't even land on her, whenever it flew near her face at all, she started screaming, thinking she just got stung by a bee. And she was so scared of being stung that she imagined pain that wasn't even there. And the, the end result was by the end of the evening, I'm sure our neighbors think I'm a terrible dad, right? Because she'd scream like she was in ho- terrible pain. I wouldn't even look up for what I'm doing and say, you're fine, stop crying, get over it, you know, and, and just ignore her. Because I knew it wasn't the real thing. Right? Now, one of these days, soon enough, she's going to be stung. Right? You're outside long enough, you're going to get stung by a bee. And once she experiences that, she's going to know the difference between actually being stung and a fly coming near you. And she won't ever confuse the two again. And believe it or not, there are a lot of people in our world, and some even in this room, who just have it all wrong. And they're not aware of it. So they have in their ideas, in their heads an idea of God. They think they know what he wants. They think they know what church is. They think they've got it figured out, but it's not the real thing. It's not even close. And all over this room are people who used to be that way. Right? Who used to think they knew God and what he wanted. But one day they found the real thing. And they've never looked back. And they've never confused the real for the counterfeit ever again. So today, using a passage from God's word in Philippians 3, we want to tell you today about the real thing. And in doing so, we want to expose for you also what isn't real and what isn't genuine and what doesn't add up. And it's our hope and prayer this morning that we would all leave this place today in a real relationship with the real God having given our lives to him. So look with me at Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, very beginning of chapter 3. It says this, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. All right, now, if you're just, if you're just joining us in Philippians, Philippians is a letter uh, from a guy named Paul to a church in Philippi, and we've been going through this together as a church, and at the start of chapter 3... He start, Paul is starting a new section and his tone is going to change, but his message is quite similar. In fact, he, he owns up to them right here in verse 1. He says, I'm kind of a broken record. I just keep telling you the same things and I'm okay with it because the reason I tell you things over and over again is because it's a safeguard for you. He's telling them, this is important enough for me to beat it into your brains to the point you won't ever forget it because there are people out there who aren't the real deal. People out there who don't have the real thing and they think they do. And so what they're going to do is try and confuse you and deceive you and convince you of something that is not true. And so I repeat myself to guard you from that. And then he specifically talks about a group of people doing this very thing in verse 2. And apparently they're what we call Judaizers. Judaizers trying to influence these Christians at Philippi. And what they were were Jewish people who, according to the Jewish law, had been circumcised when they were eight days old. And now... As adults, they claimed to be followers of Jesus, but they ran around telling any non-Jewish person who had not been circumcised that in order to be a Christian, in order to be accepted by God, they also had to be circumcised. Now, Paul has some really strong language 
for these people. He calls them dogs. He calls them men who do evil. He calls them mutilators of the flesh. Right? They weren't boys. Right? These are not his friends. Right? So what is his great problem with this? Well, one is kind of obvious. See, it's super easy for me, right? If I'm someone who is circumcised when I was eight days old and I had no choice in the matter and I have no memory of it, it's super easy for me to look at a grown adult male and, tells him, and tell him that he needs to be like me to be accepted by God. It's easy for me because I don't have to go through the pain. I'm covered. I don't have to go through that suffering. I, I don't even remember it. So this is putting a load on someone else that I'm not willing to carry myself and God's never okay with that. And the other reason that Paul hates this so much is because it's totally unnecessary. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us, and we put no confidence in human effort. Right, so Paul says that real circumcision right, has nothing to do with a physical act. Here's what he writes in Romans 2 as well. True circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law, which is being physically circumcised. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by God's Spirit. You see, the big problem that Paul had with these people has nothing to do at all with circumcision. The problem was the idea that human beings can do anything to appease God. That's why he says in verse 3 that those who are truly circumcised rely on what Jesus has done and we put no confidence in human effort. Now, we're going to be here for a few minutes together. We're going to go through a few more verses, and I'd love for you to stay with me and hang with me. But if you're getting ready to check out, if you remember nothing else at all from today's talk, at least remember this. The only way to get right with God is to rely on what Jesus Christ has done for you and to put no confidence in yourself. None. Now we're going to read the next few verses here, and in them Paul is going to make an argument. Right? And I, I love this passage for two reasons. One, is a, it's a little bit sarcastic, and two, it's a little bit feisty. Right? So he's, he's kind of speaking my language here. And I was, we're going to read it together, and let's break it down. Let's read verse 3 again to start. He says, For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us, and we put no confidence in human effort. And then in verse 4, here's what he says. Though I could have confidence in my effort, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Right Now, to understand what Paul is saying here, we must understand the climate and culture that he was writing to. Right, Paul wrote this letter around 61 AD. So this is about three decades after Jesus has died on the cross and rose from again. One of the things that Jesus did, and there were a lot, but one of the things he did was that he dramatically changed the religious culture of his day. He just took that thing and flipped it on its head. Right, because for centuries, the people of Israel had the law of God, which we find in the Old Testament. And what they came to convince themselves was that following the law and outer obedience was what God wanted most. Right, so if they were circumcised as a baby and they didn't work on the Sabbath and they followed ceremonial feasts and cleanliness routines and they would earn God's favor and blessing by doing those things. Right? And this caused a lot of problems. Number one of which is, was that it was not what God asked of them. 
He wanted them to follow the law, yes. He wanted them to observe it, but not for the sake of following rules, not for the sake of earning his favor. All along what God wanted was their hearts, not these shallow outer displays of obedience. He wanted them, not their rituals. In fact, in Amos 5, in in the Old Testament, God describes their assemblies and their gatherings and their ceremonies, things that they were commanded in the law to do, and God says that those things were meaningless to him and he hates them. Because of why and how they were doing them. The second major problem is this way of looking at things made them feel really good. Not about God, but about themselves. Right, because now if I'm, if I'm a Jew and a pure-blooded Jew at that, 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 mean, that means I'm better than everyone. To be circumcised now puts me higher than anyone who isn't. To memorize the law now makes me superior to others. To observe the Sabbath or follow the rules meant that I could look down on those who didn't. So instead of getting more and more and more of God in my life and therefore having that outflow into service and love to others, they got more and more and more full of themselves and looked down on others. And Paul, as he's writing this letter, knows this all too well because this is his story. Before he gave his life to Christ, he was a Pharisee, he tells us. And he gives us this resume of circumcised, I'm a pure-blooded Jew, I'm from the most honored tribe of Israel. I followed the law strictly and without fault. Paul is saying, man, if anybody, if anybody at all could earn their way to God, it was me. I was better at it than all of you. I could check off every single box. Now, you and I don't live in the first century. We weren't steeped in Judaism and its standards, so this analogy might not pack the punch that it would have for the people Paul was writing to. So just for fun this morning, let's just look at what this would look like today. Paul wrote this letter in 2014, right? He could say, if anybody has reason to put confidence in their own efforts, I have more because I was born to Christian parents. I was dedicated in front of the entire church. As a young child, I was baptized at one all the awards in Awana. I memorized more verses than anybody else. I've gone to church every Sunday my entire life. I even go on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. I read the Bible cover to cover. I teach Sunday school and volunteer at church whenever I can. My kids have also been dedicated and baptized. And now they're winning all the awards in Awana. I never cuss. I never drink. I don't watch R-rated movies. I only read Christian books and listen to Christian music as long as it's not too edgy. You see, I'm a Christian superstar. That's what Paul's spiritual resume would have sounded like had he written it today. And yet listen to what he writes in the very next verse, in verse 7. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. And let's pump the brakes for a second because that's huge. We need to grasp this. Paul just listed everything in his day and age and culture that people were convinced earned their way to God. And he says, I did them all. I checked off every box. In fact, I was better at them than all of you. And yet now I see that they were completely and utterly worthless. It's a huge statement. So we need to unpack this to make sure we can grasp it. As we do, I think you'll begin to understand why Paul's spiritual resume wasn't pleasing to God and more importantly, why yours isn't either. See, Paul is talking, what Paul is talking about in this section is this deception of putting confidence in your own ability to please God or appease God. He lists how many things he had done in that vain pursuit, but in the end, there wasn't a whole lot to show for it. 
right? Because number one, whatever results come from living that way come from you and not God. So if you've put all your confidence this morning in what you can do to earn your way from God, all the results are based on you and not from God. And are you really willing to bet your eternity on you? Really? You've had a front row seat to every single mistake and failing and sin and loss and pain you've caused. You're more aware of your deficiencies than most. And you're going to bank on you and your level of goodness to earn your way to God's favor? It's meaningless. In addition to just being a poor strategy, it actually doesn't lead to any kind of righteousness at all. For all that Paul did, that whole list he gave us, all the keeping of the law, all the rituals, all of his pedigree, all of his good deeds. Do you want to know what he was really like? He admits in verse 6 that in his zeal to earn his way to God, he was persecuting the church. This is what this means. At that time when he was a Pharisee, Paul worked for the high priest and he thought Christianity was wrong and blasphemous, but it wasn't enough just to disagree with it. He was so zealous to earn his way to God's favor that everyone had to come in line with him. And so under the veil of serving God, he stormed into people's homes and he dragged them out and he threw them in dungeons and prisons. He even arranged executions. In Acts chapter 7, we're told of this powerful scene of Stephen being stoned to death for preaching about Christ. He was the very first follower of Christ, killed for being a follower of Christ. And we're told that standing right there on the side was Paul, and he held the cloaks for those who were throwing the stones because he didn't want them to be hindered as they pelted this man with stones, killing him. And Acts 7 tells us that the only emotion that Paul felt that day was approval. He approved of it. See, religion makes you crazy. Seriously. These men killed Stephen because they believed that he didn't uphold the law. The law which says you should not murder. And since he didn't uphold the law, they murdered him. It's madness. And Paul is far from the first or last person to do something awful in the name of God. Something that God would never approve of, never ask for, never be pleased in. Yet throughout our history, people have done awful things to each other, all in the name of religion. And yeah, some were crazy, sure. But you see, most of them, most of them were operating under the same philosophy that the majority of people operate under. They're just, they were just more committed to the cause. It's this philosophy and this idea that God is about weighing our good and our bad, that he, is, he has this divine scale against which he will measure all that I've done for him or against him, that it is somehow up to me and my efforts and my abilities to appease the divine. That false idea has led to more heartache and evil and the infliction of pain and suffering than any other idea throughout our existence. You see, even if you don't go as far as Paul, even if you don't go all religious zealot on everyone, it remains the most damaging idea you can embrace in your life. Because it never, ever, ever changes your heart. So Paul wrote in Romans 2. You want to know what true circumcision is? It's a change of heart produced by God's spirit. Friends, you cannot earn your way to God. You cannot ever change your heart. You just can't do it. And so to go through this life putting confidence in you is to go through this life fighting the losing battle. You're never going to win. Paul, the guy who claimed to fight that battle better than anyone, said, I used to think those things were valuable. But now, 
I consider them worthless. And hear this, they are worthless because of what Jesus has done. See, Jesus changed the game. Now, you might be some, one of those who think that all faith ideas and all journeys to God and all these different beliefs, they all have an equal value and they all kind of teach the same thing. And I agree with you, except for one. Because you see, every system of faith, every world religion, every spiritual journey out there puts confidence in human effort. To earn your way to God, you must do this. You must pray facing this way. You must eat this, but not that. Or do this, and not that. Follow this, but don't do that. Give this, avoid that. On and on and on. And if you are good enough at following that list, then maybe, maybe, maybe the divine creator will be pleased with you in the end. And Paul says, man, I... I used to think that had value. I used to live that way. I chased all that. Now I see that it was worthless because of what Jesus has done. What did Jesus do? Well, first he came and deconstructed the idea that you could ever be good enough. In Matthew, Jesus is standing before a group of people and he says, You've all heard that it is said you should not commit adultery. Men, all, surely, men all around that group thought, Man, I've never cheated on my wife. I'm good to go. Then Jesus kept talking. But I say to you that if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. Well, that changes it a bit. You've been told that not to commit murder. They're looking around thinking, there are no murderers in here. But then Jesus said, I, I tell you, if you hold anchor in your heart or contempt for your brother, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Then Jesus says, it's not what goes into your body that makes someone unclean. It's what comes out of you. It's what flows out of your mouth and in your actions that make you unclean because it shows that your heart is unclean. So Jesus came and he raised the bar and he taught that God is not interested in what you do nearly as much as he's interested in why you do it. Because why you do things speaks to your heart. It speaks to your character. It speaks to your motivation and attitude. You can go to church your entire life. You can play whatever game you want to play. You can put on a facade for everyone. You can fool all of us. And God can still not have a single shred of your heart. Jesus made it clear. God's standard is perfection. It is holiness. And he will not accept anything less than that. And Romans 3.23 says that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's standards. So the truth is this. You can't earn your way to God. You've already fallen short. You're already imperfect. And there's nothing that you can do in your own power or by your own efforts to be made right with God. And this is a huge problem. Because of sin, we all die. I mean, look around. Death comes for all of us. It's not a profound statement. It comes for all of us. This is why the Bible tells us in Romans 5.12 that when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. And Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone. Right. So when sin entered the world through that first man, Adam, the first man sinned, and now you and I stand cursed by the power of sin. Right, so we cannot earn our way to God, but this is what else we're told later in Romans 5. From the sin of this one man, Adam brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus did a whole lot more than let us know that we were getting it all wrong. He got it right for us. 
Jesus lived the perfect, sinless life because he was God. And then to pay the price for the sins of all who believe in him, he died on the cross. And three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating death and proving he was who he said he was. And now he stands before us. And now what stands before us is this. Because of what Jesus has done, not what you've done or I've done, but because of what Jesus has done, we can be forgiven. If we repent of our sins and give our lives to Christ and ask him to take over, The Bible tells us that we are forgiven of all of our sins. We're given a new heart. His spirit comes and takes up residence inside of us. And we are guaranteed eternal life forever in heaven with him. And Paul's whole life was changed with those six words. Because of what Jesus has done. Because he realized it wasn't up to him. He could give up that exhausting tiring, self-centered, self-focused, weary life of making it all about him and he could surrender and submit and accept the work of Jesus on his behalf. And when he did, he looked back on his life as it was and he says it was worthless. All of it. See, the battle's never worth it. The payoff just isn't there. And this shouldn't surprise us. We would, we would never treat a human relationship this way and find fulfillment in it. I mean, think about it. Today's Mother's Day. Right? So throughout this country, people do acts of love for their mother today, whether it's cards or phone calls or, or gifts or acts of service, all designed to honor their mom. And yesterday, uh, Corinne had somewhere to go, so I was home alone with the girls, and so I sat down a five-year-old and two-year-old and tried to explain to them what Mother's Day is. I'm not sure I succeeded, but Hattie at least understood there was a motivation to do something nice for her mom. And so the, our first goal was this. We're going to clean this entire house. Right? We're going to make it spotless. And we failed miserably at this because Jim's spiritual gift is ruining any progress. That, that's, that's what she does. You clean a room, five minutes later she's behind it and she's ruined it all. Like that, she has been divinely gifted for that. Right? So we moved on. Let's try something else. And Hattie found these these magnets that have these animals on it. One, some are farm animals, some are ocean animals. And I have no idea why, but she decided that her mom would love it if she organized these animals on the refrigerator. And so she spent over an hour placing these things exactly where they needed to be. Two minutes later, Gemma comes in and ruins it all. Knocks them all off because that's just what she does, right? So Hattie comes back, spends another half hour. Insert Gemma again, ruins it all, right? So Hattie ends up spending over two hours Right, over two hours, organizing this, setting this up. Again, I have no idea why she thought Corinne would like this, but she really thought she was. And the whole time she kept saying, Mama's just going to love this. Mama's just going to love this. Right. Now, what if while she was doing that, she said, I really hope this is enough to make Mama love me today. What if when you gave your mom a phone call today, or cards or flowers, and man, I just hope that's enough to get her attention today. It'd be a terrible relationship. She'd be a terrible mother. And yet the majority of human beings have for all of history projected that onto God. What a, what a junky view of God. What a pathetic, distant God that would be who sits aloof and afar and observes you and decides if you're worthy of his attention. But you see, we don't embrace that idea that we earn our way to God because it's a good view of God. That's not why we embrace it. We embrace it because it's a good view of us. And we are so cursed and so 
prideful that we will embrace any idea that makes us look good without thinking of the logical conclusions of it. The actual truth is this. You aren't worthy of God. You aren't worthy of his favor. You aren't worthy of his presence and his grace and his forgiveness and his love. You aren't worthy of anything from him. And yet he came for you anyways. While we were still sinners, the Bible says, Christ came and died for us. And when that truth captured Paul's life, listen to what he could write in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Yes, he says, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. Everything else is worthless compared with knowing Jesus. Is there anything in your life you could say that about? In a room this size, on a day like today, there are people who are in very different places in here. For some of us, this is, this is you. Verse 8 could be your life statement that everything else has been, you've discovered it to be worthless compared to just knowing Jesus. Because you found him to be everything that you could imagine and more. You found life in him. You found forgiveness in him. You found fulfillment and adventure and purpose and identity in Jesus Christ. You are who you were created to be. And all of it is due to what Jesus has done, not what you have. And so the reason that you're here today in this place is because of what Jesus has done. The reason that you don't just live any way you want, you live to make much of him and you long to serve him and live for him and tell others about him is not to earn his favor, but it's because of what he has done. It's all in a response to him. You do it for those six words because of what Jesus has done. And I would bet there are probably people in this room still chasing the lie. In fact, the very reason you're here today is because you're chasing the lie. That somehow by being here, you're checking off another box. You're playing the game one more time. You're doing what you can to earn your way to God. And it's a losing battle that's simply not worth it. You've got it all backwards, friend. These men in verse 2, Paul calls them dogs and evildoers and mutilators because their focus was entirely backward. See, what they thought was what they did made them believers and worthy of Christ. What they didn't realize is that Jesus had done it all. And followers of Christ accept his free gift and then live in response to what he's done. Yeah, we're here. We come here. We worship. We read his word. We serve him. We live him. Not to earn his favor, though, but because he's worthy of our lives after what he's done. And if you've got it backwards, you clinging to your spiritual resume if you're banking on the idea that you can be good enough please please get over yourself you're not that special you can't do what no one else can do and the cross of Jesus doesn't just defeat sin it crushes the idea that you could ever earn your way to God The cross of Jesus obliterates any pathetic accruement of self-righteousness that I could have. And in its place, 
offers you love and eternal life and forgiveness and grace all for free. You just need to repent of going your own way, of doing it yourself, of trying it yourself, and you just need to surrender your life and your everything to him. And lastly, especially on a day like today, there's probably one more group. You're here because mom invited you. You're trying to throw her a bone, get her off your back till at least Christmas, right? Let's just be honest about it. And the reason you had no real interest in being here is because you played the game. You grew up in church, maybe even this one, and somewhere along the way you got the idea that it was nothing more than moralistic deism, that to be a Christian was about behavior, about earning God's favor, about doing certain things and not doing others. And you gave it a full, honest go. You really did. But you found that empty and meaningless. And so the moment you got freedom, you bolted. Well, you tried the game, but you must know you didn't try Jesus. You tried religion, but you didn't try the real deal. So it made no change in your life. And now you're chasing something else. You're going your own way. And let me at least save you the trouble. You're going to find that to be just as empty and meaningless. Paul, when he stopped playing the game, and when he found Jesus, wrote that everything else in his life was worthless compared to just knowing Christ. Jesus himself said that he came to give us life and life to the fullest. Have you found anything out there like that? Is there anything in your life that means so much to you that everything else is useless compared to it? Oh, to you and to all who've never given their lives to Jesus, and this is what I say, come as if you're coming for the first time. Lay down your efforts. Stop trying to forge your own way. Stop settling for something counterfeit. And give your life to Jesus Christ. Don't give your life to changing your behavior. Don't give your life to becoming a better person. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Calling out to him to forgive you and to take over. It's the real deal. And you'll never regret it. Let's pray.